This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have an interview with Dr. Michael Habib. We have Dinosaur of the Day Amargosaurus. And we have a bunch of dinosaur news. But first we would like to thank some of our Stegosaurus patrons. This week we'd like to thank Chris, Nicholas, Kyle and Betsy, Blaze Campbell, Trent Carbajal, Paralorolophus, and Stefan. And Stefan was new last time we mentioned him, and I forgot to mention that. <laughs> mentioned that he was new. Yeah. So thanks, Stefan, for joining. Yeah. Thanks to all of our Stegosaurus patrons and all of our patrons in general. We really appreciate all that you do and all your support. If you'd like to join this growing community of dinosaur enthusiasts, then check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping right into the news, there's a new dinosaur. So we have to start with that. It's, New it's, news. It's kind of a rule. Yeah. <laughs> this one's a eusauropod, also known as a true sauropod. The long-necked, exciting ones, not those early sauropod ones that no one's interested in. <laughs> not no one. <laughs> Most people. <laughs> it was published in Nature Scientific Reports and written by Rafael Royo Torres and others. And it's named Mierasaurus babiungai. And Mierasaurus comes from Bernardo de Miera y Pacheco. And he was a Spanish cartographer and, quote, the first European scientist to enter what is now Utah. That's an interesting thing to be known for. Yeah. He ma apparently made some pretty amazing maps. I looked at a couple of them from New Mexico. I couldn't find the ones from Utah, but... I think it was Jim Kirkland in an interview talking about how great the maps were. So, makes sense. And then Bob Youngeye is after Robert Young, who did a lot of what they refer to as underappreciated research on early Cretaceous in Utah. So, two deserving scientists, it sounds like. Mierasaurus was found in the yellow cat member in the Dwellings Bowl bone bed, which was possibly a marsh deposit. There's some salt and some other stuff, which is kind of funny to think about marshes in Utah. But it was from the early Cretaceous, about 130 to 140 million years ago. And it's in eastern Utah, a little bit north of Moab. And not surprisingly, it's closely related to Moabasaurus, which is from the same formation. And both Mierasaurus and Moabasaurus are Turiosaurians, 
which are rare in North America. They're mostly found in Europe. And what they're thinking from this is that since we only see them in the early Cretaceous and we don't see any of them in the Jurassic, whereas you see a lot of them in Jurassic Europe, they likely expanded into Western North America after the Jurassic Cretaceous extinction when it appears that the land masses were connected by some lower sea levels and things like that. The first bones of Mirasaurus were found in 2010 by Gary Hunt, and he found them while hiking after a flash flood. He works for the Geological Services, I think. So he knew what he was looking at or had yeah. an idea? Geological Survey. I think that's what it was. But yeah, he had enough of an appreciation for paleontology to at least know who to contact. And they ended up finding a ton of the dinosaur. They found most of the skull in pieces, which is still pretty good for a sauropod. You know, we usually miss out on the skull. So even if it is smashed into pieces and you're missing bits here and there, it's pretty good. They found a lot of teeth, vertebrae, ribs, scapula, an arm, the full hips, both femurs, a front and hind foot, and some other pieces. That's a lot. Yeah, and it makes it, quote, the most complete individual sauropod dinosaur from the Cretaceous of North America. Pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. The vertebrae aren't fully fused, which means it's probably a subadult. They also found another femur and part of a jaw, possibly also from a juvenile nearby. And obviously it couldn't be the same individual because no dinosaur has three femurs. So <laughs> there's definitely at least one more individual. Although whether or not it's a Mierasaurus is kind of hard to tell from just those two bones. They estimate its length at about 10 to 12 meters or 33 to 39 feet, which is significantly smaller than the European relatives. Although I'm not quite sure if they're talking about its maximum length or if they're talking about the length of this subadult. I think it was relatively fully grown. It just hadn't quite fully developed, you know, all the bones hadn't solidified essentially, but pretty awesome find if you like sauropods. Sure do. Yeah. And there's a pretty big lack of sauropods in North America from the Cretaceous. So finding any is great and finding one that's, that is this complete is especially cool. Next, we have a follow-up on the Italian tracks we talked about on the top of Mount Pelmo a couple episodes ago, and I had mentioned I have no idea how these were found because I didn't mention it in the paper, but luckily Ricardo shared with us on Patreon some information about it. He said, hi guys, in episode 151, you mentioned an article concerning the discovery of a track site in the Italian Alps. As a native speaker, I had a chance to read some local newspapers and other websites about this. According to local sources, the discovery actually dates back to the early 80s. I'm assuming 1980s. <laughs> Vitorino Cassetta from Selva di Cadore, a renowned ski town in northern Italy, was hiking in that area when he recognized possible tracks. A self-proclaimed paleontologist, his explanation of the origin of these depressions in the rock was not believed until recently because the rocks formed from a seabed. Hmm. Apparently, the dinosaur, probably a Coelophysis, was strolling on the shoreline. The modern reinterpretation stirred some interest in the community. Enzo Procopio, a filmmaker from the nearby city of Treviso, pulled off a small project to popularize the finding. Together with the local artist Moro Lampo Olivato, he shot some footage and took 
photographs of the area. Mr. Olavato also created a wooden dinosaur nicknamed Ebelus that can be seen from the distance to mark the spot. So I guess that's still up there. He sent us some cool pictures showing this wooden dinosaur up by the tracks. I can't imagine it would last that long out in the snow and everything because it looks looks relatively flimsy considering they had to haul all that wood up to the top. <laughs> it looks like it's in good shape. It does. Also, the photographer, as Ricardo pointed out, has a great name, Francesco Soro. Yeah. <laughs> he also sent us a link to a hiking guide and we'll post that in case you're ever in the northeastern Italian Alps looking for some dinosaurs. Or wooden dinosaurs. Could be. <laughs> I don't know if it'll still be there a year from now. Oh, even. yeah, you never know. But thanks, Ricardo. That was really cool to see. Yeah, thank you. The next article comes from the Geological Society of America annual meeting, also known as GSA. And there was a presentation or poster or something by Stephen Stanley. And I was pretty happy to see this because it came out, I think I mentioned recently on the show that T-Rex arms probably would have been pretty good for slashing because it had pretty sizable claws. And that's exactly what he talked about in his talk and or poster or whatever it was. Can't really tell from the abstract. <laughs> so I want to read what the abstract says because I think it's pretty great. He said, six of the arms derive traits indicate that they were adapted for slashing at close quarters. One, the shortness of the arms would actually have been advantageous for this activity. Two, a large coracoid indicates that the arms were very strong, not only slightly longer than the leg of a six-foot man, but also of similar girth. So it's the size of my leg, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Three, the arm bones were quite robust and would readily have sustained the impact of slashing. Four, the unusual reduction of the number of fingers from three to two would have resulted in 50% more pressure being applied to each claw. Oof. Five, the humoral head was part of an unusual quasi-ball and socket joint that would have provided considerable mobility for slashing. Six, the huge eight to ten centimeter long, three to four inch, sickle-shaped claws would have caused deep wounds. <laughs> It's a pretty good analysis of its arms and claws, I think. Yeah. I know I've described before that their arms could curl approximately 300 pounds. <laughs> but I guess if you think about a leg, if you're doing a leg press or something, 300 pounds is probably a similar thing. So, yeah, it's like a human leg with a four-inch knife on the end of it. Stay away from those T-Rex arms. Yeah, for sure. I also heard somebody mentioning how... Basically, if you got past its skull, then the claws would be useful because it'd be hard with that big head so far out when you're kind of teetering to chomp near your feet and things like that. So if something's trying to run underneath you, it'd be handy to be able to slash. I think part of the reason people think that its arms are so flimsy, though, is because its claws are only three to four inches long. And in a lot of depictions like Jurassic Park, they depict dinosaur skin as kind of impervious to even bullets. So you imagine that you need like all this pressure and power and crazy amounts of superhuman force in order to do any damage at all. But really, these claws are similar to a lot of dinosaurs' teeth <laughs> and probably sharper. So if you can put a 300-pound curling limb 
on the end of that, you could definitely do some serious damage. Hmm. They also said that these sorts of adaptations would make sense as their arms were no longer needed for grasping. So it looks like they were transitioning to slashing rather than just disappearing. (laughs) But I'm sure all the memes of T-Rex arms being pathetic will continue. They are pretty funny. Yeah. T-Rex can't make his bed. It definitely would be problematic in modern society. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Although most dinosaurs that just kind of had claws would have a lot of difficulty doing trivial day-to-day tasks anyway. Just like Edward Scissorhands. Yeah. Next up, we have two articles about the Chicxulub impact, and they kind of conflict a little bit. So I had to dive pretty deep into them. <laughs> the first one was written by... Kaiho and Oshima, and published in Nature's Scientific Reports, and thanks to Ian for sharing this with us via Patreon. So Sabrina mentioned a couple months ago how the Chicxulub impact site hit in an area with really high sulfur, and how if it had struck 15 minutes earlier or later, it might not have hit that point, and it might not have caused the mass extinction. And I think that was kind of a preface to this paper. And dinosaurs being very unlucky. Yes, (laughs) a little bit. So this really digs into the math and the science of it, which is what we're all about. So as you probably remember from Sabrina's news story, if you hit a high sulfur area with an asteroid, it shoots a lot of sulfur up into the upper atmosphere. Not too surprising. And what happens is when sulfur is in the upper atmosphere, it reflects a lot of solar radiation, which can lead to pretty significant global cooling and therefore extinctions if it cools enough. But these researchers also looked at the soot that was released at the impact site. They estimate that about 1,500 teragrams of black carbon were released and a teragram. It's quite the gram. <laughs> yeah. It's the first time I've seen teragrams. A lot of times it's in gigatons. So there's a thousand teragrams to a gigaton. So 1,500 teragrams is the same as 1.5 gigatons. Both are pretty difficult to fathom. They actually, in the paper, mentioned that if 1,500 teragrams got shot up into the atmosphere, they estimate that 350 teragrams would have stayed in the upper atmosphere. A lot of it kind of rains back down quickly, but that amount would stay there for at least a year. And 350 teragrams, they describe as 150 times the volume of a baseball arena covered by a full roof. So if you've ever been in a baseball stadium and you imagine filling it, and then doing that 150 times, you have to spread that out in the upper atmosphere everywhere. And the way the upper atmosphere works is since it's so far on the boundary of the Earth, the stratosphere, basically, it reflects a lot more effectively than if you have the same particulate lower down, because it basically shields it at the outermost (laughs) layer. From their study, they found that hydrocarbon-rich areas, basically areas that would have produced this 350 teragrams, cover about 13% of Earth. So there was about a 1 in 8 chance of the asteroid hitting that point. So yeah, a little bit unlucky. (laughs) Although it's hard to say there might have been other impacts that we just don't know about because they just hit the ocean. So maybe 
that happened 20 times before this one hit <laughs> and they're actually lucky. Hmm. We'll never know. <laughs> I guess. Their analysis showed that, like I said, with 1,500 teragrams being released, 350 teragrams would make it to the upper atmosphere. And after about two years, they think there'd still be about 250 teragrams up there, which is way more than I thought. Conventional wisdom is basically that the soot-type particles wouldn't stay in the upper atmosphere as long as things like the sulfur would. But they even showed that after four years, about 100 teragrams would still be in the upper atmosphere. And that means that it would have taken about 10 years for the soot to kind of finally get out of the upper atmosphere and for temperatures to recover. They estimated just from the soot alone, the Earth would have cooled about 8 to 10 degrees Celsius or 14 to 18 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's as a global average surface temperature. And then if you are just talking about land, which is what we're really concerned about for dinosaurs, you add on another 8 degrees Celsius or 14 degrees Fahrenheit of dropping. So you're down to effectively a 30 degree Fahrenheit drop. Mm. So if you're in an area that's usually 60 degrees. That's a big difference. Now it's below freezing the whole time. Yeah. So not good. They also estimated a 65 to 80 percent drop in precipitation on land. Because without these temperature differentials, it doesn't drive as much of the water cycle. And obviously, if you stop watering your plants regularly, they die. So that's not great. I mean, they're already not getting sunlight, so they're probably dead anyway and it's cold. But, you know, just, just in case. <laughs> they did say that sulfur could also have a really significant impact on the climate. But only 1% to 2% of Earth has a high enough sulfur content to create this sort of temperature change from the sulfur in it. It appears that the place where the Chicxulub impactor hit, it, you know, Chicxulub, was one of these places. <laughs> so that's more like a 1 in 50 chance. Also pretty bad luck. But they say that most of the ejected sulfur would probably turn into acid rain and only about 3% of the sulfur released would have reached the upper atmosphere. On the other hand, the soot, you know, where I said 350 teragrams out of 1,500 made it to the upper atmosphere, that's more like 23% staying up there, so significantly less with the sulfur. Their sulfur calculations had really big error bars compared to the soot, too. They were basically saying it could be from a 0 to 13 degree Celsius change. <laughs> so... It's really hard to tell. And I think it's because of that uncertainty about how much of the sulfur would have actually made it to the upper atmosphere. And it actually matters what type of sulfur forms when the impactor hits. If it's sulfur dioxide versus trioxide, it has a huge difference on the impact on the climate. So they kind of emphasize that this combination of hydrocarbon and sulfur-rich impact site is very rare, you know, basically 1% to 2% of the Earth. And therefore, dinosaurs kind of unlucky. But they think that the hydrocarbons, or the soot, probably had a bigger impact than the sulfur, which is something we haven't really heard recently. They were talking about that back in like the 80s and 90s. They talked about the ash blocking out the sun. But lately, there's been a lot more talk about sulfur. So it's kind of interesting to hear the soot being discussed again. Mm -hmm. And typically, scientists estimate about 8 to 10 degrees Celsius is the requirement for mass extinction, and the soot alone was enough for that. So, 
Yeah, they didn't even really need the sulfur, according to these calculations. That <laughs> but was it was just, a double whammy. Yeah, just icing on the cake. And that might have been part of the reason that there was all this extinction going on in the oceans, because the oceans are a little bit less susceptible to some of these temperature changes. So 8 to 10 degrees on average is like 16 degrees on land and maybe only 6 degrees in the ocean or something like that. So... If you can ramp it up to 20 degrees on average, then the ocean is making it up into that 8 to 10 degree range and everything's going extinct. The other paper that talked about the Chicxulub impactor came from Geophysical Research Letters. And thanks to Damien via Facebook for sharing this one with us. The lead author on this one was Natalia Artemieva. And it was also written in conjunction with, they're listed as an author, Expedition 364 Science Party. Interesting. <laughs> and that's the one that Sean Gulick co-led that we talked about with drilling into the peak ring down in Mexico. Mm-hmm. We interviewed him a few months ago, maybe a year ago now. Most of this paper, it takes a completely different approach than the paper we just talked about. They're mostly talking about the projectile physics from the impact itself. So they're looking at the size, the speed, and the angle of the impact. And they estimated that about 300 gigatons of sulfur was ejected fast enough to reach the upper atmosphere. Now compare that to the earlier paper, which estimated between half a ton and three gigatons of sulfur. Hmm. It's two orders of magnitude. You don't usually see that level of difference between papers coming out so close together. They also estimated that 425 gigatons of carbon dioxide was emitted by the impact, which is 11 times last year's total human addition. Last year, apparently, humans made about 38 gigatons of carbon dioxide. So basically, in a single instant, there's 11 years worth of (laughs) modern civilization carbon dioxide output. And they said that the carbon dioxide wouldn't have had enough of a global warming effect to counter the cooling effect of the sulfur, but it would have increased long-term warming trends. And more importantly, from a mass extinction point of view, would have led to some pretty significant ocean acidification. So the first paper was talking more about soot, and then this one's more focused on the sulfur? Yeah, this paper didn't mention soot at all, actually. And then the f- <laughs> But the first one didn't mention any of the physics of the impact. So it really seems like these people should have been working together. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they will in a future paper. Yeah, neither of the papers referenced any of the authors from the other paper, from what I could tell. So it's like they were just... They came out around the same time. They did, but sometimes authors will be working on the same type of thing for a while. And so they'll reference that author, but just in a different paper. Mm -hmm. So hopefully they end up working together. So a few of the differences between the two papers, the Kaiho article, which was the first one we talked about, used a nine kilometer diameter asteroid, whereas this Artemieva article used a 12.2 kilometer diameter asteroid asteroid, which is a huge difference. Mm -hmm. If you think about the volume and the mass and the momentum and everything, that makes a really big difference. The specifics of this article that focused on the physics of the impact estimated 2,500 gigatons of asteroid impacting at 18 kilometers a second, or about 40,000 miles an hour (laughs) at a 60 degree angle. So the closer it is to 90 degrees, the bigger impact it has. So that's pretty bad. The Artemieva article didn't mention at all the different forms of sulfur. So 
that might account for a lot of this difference since the first article estimated only 3% of it reaching. That's basically two orders of magnitude and difference right there. And then since they were using a smaller impactor, I'm sure that made a big difference. Most of the coverage of these papers was focused on the second article, probably because that was the group that was down drilling in Mexico. So they're definitely working with more new information. And they say in the paper that they think temperatures dropped more than 20 degrees Celsius or 36 degrees Fahrenheit and took over 30 years to recover compared with 10 years and more like 10 to 15 degrees in the other paper. But that was based on the Brugger et al. paper that we talked about earlier where they said basically all of the land on Earth was below freezing for several years and they were using 100 gigatons of sulfur as their justification for how that temperature drop would occur. And basically these authors said, well, 100 gigatons is about a third of 300 gigatons and therefore it must be significantly colder. They didn't go any farther into their math than that, which I think the first paper crew could help out with a lot. (laughs) So I'm seeing some opportunities for collaboration. (laughs) (laughs) You tell them, Garrett. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's hard. You know, they're on different... They're probably on different continents and definitely in different research groups and all sorts of things, but they definitely have different skills. Even though they are kind of conflicting papers, they differ in their exact temperatures and all that kind of stuff. They both point to extreme temperature drops of more than 10 degrees Celsius, which would be enough for a mass extinction, and a recovery period that lasted at least 10 years that obviously is long enough to wipe out tons of animals and plants it's just the mechanisms that are different and like i said neither of them cite one another so it's unclear how they're receiving the other paper but hopefully we kind of nail down a little bit more about the sulfur because it seems like that's still a big question mark of just how much this sulfur would impact the temperature change moving on there's a story about how a hospital in Shoto, Montana, recently did a CT scan of dinosaur eggs. So Dave Trexler and the team from Two Medicine Dinosaur Center, which we've been to, we did our dig there, they brought the eggs to the hospital. And these eggs have a new type of eggshell, possibly from a ceratopsian or tyrannosaur. And it's a new egg taxon. So the only way to identify it for sure is to find an embryo inside. So a CT scanner can help you see what's inside the egg in a non-destructive way. The site where the eggs came from was first found in 2012, but then it was closed till 2015 because there weren't enough people that could excavate. And in 2016, after they got more people, they found that the site was four times bigger than previously thought. There's still a lot of work to be done, but it will be interesting to see what the outcome is. And Garrett, that might even be from the site that we dug at. Yeah, I was wondering that. There were a couple other sites where they were doing some digging. But ours was of a nest, and we were digging up eggshells. True. I can't remember what they said, though, about the type of eggshell, because there were different types. There were some eggshells, when you looked at at it closely, it looked kind of wavy, and others had this, like, braille-like thing, and then there was this third type. Yeah, I don't remember either. For some reason, I thought it was a hadrosaur. We'll just have to keep tabs and hear more about it. 
In more egg news, uh, paleontologists from Tomsk State University and St. Petersburg State University and Zoological Museum and the Paleontological Institute of the Russian Academy of Sciences. (laughs) That's a mouthful. They recently studied the first dinosaur egg found in Russia, and they estimate it to be about 100 million years old. And this egg was found about a decade ago in the Kemerovo region, and it's a Troodontidae egg which is an ancestor to modern birds. There's no embryo. The nest was destroyed in an ancient flood, so you won't know for sure. But the eggshell is very similar in structure with a modern bird eggshell, and that helps to further prove that birds came from dinosaurs. In case we needed more proof. (laughs) You can never have too much proof. I guess so. Next, paleontologists have found fossils on the Isle of Skye in Scotland of an animal that they think could be as big as a T-Rex. So Elsa Panzeroli, a PhD student at the University of Edinburgh, has been leading the dig, and it's still too early to know for sure what kind of dinosaur it is, but they've had a lot of success. They found hundreds of dinosaur footprints, mostly of sauropods, and also theropods, and there's an expectation that Scotland's heading into this golden age of dinosaurs with a lot of new discoveries. As long as they're doing the same thing the rest of the world is, then they should be. What do you mean? We're in the golden age of dinosaurs globally. Oh, yeah. Going to back to the Triassic, there's a team from the University of Rhode Island that's researching what led to animals going extinct in the late Triassic. So according to URI Today, quote, if the researchers determined that all of the animals went extinct at about the same time, rather than gradually over a long period, they may be able to link the animal's extinction to the catastrophic impact of an asteroid that left a 50-mile-wide crater in Quebec, an impact that some scientists believe was responsible for the extinctions at that time, end quote. Though so asteroids, they really do damage. Those are the big ones. Yeah. <laughs> so David Fastovsky, a URI professor, is leading the team, and he said that they're using high-precision uranium-led dating to date faunal turnover, which is when you see one set of animals or fauna disappearing and then another set of fauna appearing. And this team's doing field work to relocate fossil sites and then fill in gaps in their data over the next year, and they're hoping to learn more about the cause of the extinction this way. Next, I just found this piece of news kind of interesting. It's Sheridan College in Wyoming. They've been digging for dinosaurs for the past 25 years near the Bighorn Mountains on 640 acres of land that they've leased. And they found more than 2,000 pounds of fossils from the Morrison Formation, including Caesar, which is their Allosaurus, on display at the Sheridan College Whitney Center. They found him in the 90s. So hopefully the college keeps its lease. But 2,000 pounds, that's a lot of fossils. Yeah, I was trying to think what that could be. But I guess one big triceratops skull could probably weigh 2,000 pounds. But if they're allosaurus bones, theropod bones are definitely a little more mm-hmm. <laughs> gracile. So you, the 2,000 pounds goes a lot longer. Yeah, I imagine it's a lot of different kinds since they've been going for 25 years. True. Next, extinct monsters wrote about the Field Museum in Chicago and the ritual of cleaning the skeleton of Sue the T-Rex, which I didn't even think about it, but it makes sense that you have to keep your mounts clean. You gotta dust them. (laughs) Dust them, yeah. So with Sue, this only happens twice a year, and it's because her fossils are delicate. It takes about 90 minutes to clean her, and Bill Simpson, who's the Field Museum Collections 
manager is the one who does the cleaning. It's not actually part of his regular job, but he's been in charge of Sue since 1997. So he makes it his job. <laughs> and he uses a portable vacuum to blow air on her from about a foot away so as not to damage her. And then he uses a feather duster for the harder to reach areas. As we mentioned, it makes sense that you clean your skeletons, and this is apparently pretty standard for museums, but in Sue's case, it becomes this whole big affair. Like, it's advertised on the museum's public calendar, and there's often news stories about it, even though it happens twice a year. So that just goes to show how popular of a dinosaur she is. Yeah, as long as the public can still see it while it's being cleaned... I wouldn't think it would be that big of news, but I guess. I guess you've got different visitors coming each time. Yeah. You might get a chance to ask more questions about Sue if you've got somebody out there cleaning it. Yeah. In more sort of T-Rex news, from now until January 7th, the Burke Museum in Seattle, Washington has an exhibit called Testing, Testing, One, Two, Three, and it's been going since June, but it's kind of constantly changing because you can see the behind-the-scenes work, like their preparation of a T-Rex skull. And this skull was found in the Hell Creek Formation in Montana, and apparently the team added a googly eye to show visitors where the eye would have been while they continued to prepare the fossil. I saw a picture of it. It's it's pretty silly looking. And it's also a large googly eye. Hmm. In Japan, the Shoganji Temple in Katsushika Ward in Tokyo now has a Styracosaurus statue that guards it. Ooh. Yeah. That's so, a cool guard. Well, the whole story is cool because this temple was established in the year 1600, and now it's got a dinosaur guarding it. And the temple's chief priest, Roy Kasuga, said that he wants to make the temple interesting for everyone. This Styracosaurus is about 14.7 feet or four and a half meters long. And Kasuga said, quote, we put the dinosaur there instead of a komenu, a guard lion dog statue. He looks strong and seems to be able to protect us, doesn't he? End quote. <laughs> yeah, I think a styracosaurus would make a better guard than a lion if you could train it. Yeah. Probably. Although, I don't know, lions are pretty crazy. Can you, How well can you train a lion? Probably better than a styracosaurus, actually. Hmm. Because it's smaller? <laughs> no, just because they're mammals, and mammals have a little more of that brain. Ah, uh, I see. But the horns, the frills. It'd be pretty cool. Hmm. Next, thanks to Janice, who shared this one with us via Facebook. So Atlas Obscura wrote a piece about prehistoric forest amusement park in Michigan, and it's this abandoned dinosaur theme park, and the photos, I thought, seemed like a mix of creepy but kind of cool-looking. The park was established back in 1963, and it's got 15 life-sized fiberglass dinosaurs, as well as a volcano, safari train, and a 400-foot jungle rapids water slide. (laughs) The park closed in 2002, but even in the 80s when it was still open, there were vandals. And photos show some of the dinosaur statues that are knocked down and they're laying among leaves, which is kind of creepy. And there's one of a sauropod looking over an abandoned building and this building kind of looks like it's crumbling i don't know if it's the light or if it's actually just falling apart this is why michigan can't have nice things no well (laughs) it's near a park a dinosaur park that's open that's not completely destroyed by vandals yeah that's nice yeah 
We've got a few more exhibit news. So on December 15th to 17th, you can see Jurassic Quest at the Austin Convention Center in Texas. And there's going to be animatronic dinosaurs like Stegosaurus and T-Rex and baby Triceratops and Camarasaurus puppets. And kids can ride some of the dinosaurs. And there's also a fossil making station, a dig, bounce houses, and face painting. So if you're in the area and you want to go, tickets cost between $14 and $29. And later in December, on December 30th and 31st, Brooklyn's Park in New Plymouth, Taranaki, New Zealand, will be having its second dino fest. So they're going to have a dino dig, dinosaur tattoos, art activities, and a Jurassic dinosaur trail where you learn about dinosaurs discovered in New Zealand. And tickets there cost $10. I was thinking, that's really late for an outdoor dinosaur thing. And then you said New Zealand. It's like, oh. It's summer. The middle of the summer. (laughs) New Year's Eve. Yep. <laughs> it's summertime. Let's go to a park. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We also got some more info on Field Station Dinosaurs, which is coming to Derby, Kansas. There's going to be 34 life-size animatronic dinosaurs on 14 acres of land. And those dinosaurs will include Alamosaurus, Velociraptor, Arkansaurus, and T-Rex. And If you visit, you'll be able to dig for fossils and walk past the dinosaurs and take part in events. So the park will be opening May of next year, Memorial Day in the U.S., and it's going to cost $6.5 million to build. Luckily for you, tickets will only cost $15. (laughs) I've also got an update on the Mary Anning film. So the first trailer for part one has been released, and the film is called The Poldark of the Dorset. We've talked about this Mary Anning film before. The film stars Jenny Agutter, and it's directed by Sharon Sheehan, and it is in need of funding. So the trailer is two and a half minutes long, and it shows a lot of shots of Mary walking around near the beach. And there's a couple cool shots, though, of an ichthyosaur skull and Mary preparing it. Yeah, that looked pretty neat. I think it was actually most of the ichthyosaur because it was kind of laid out on a table. Mm -hmm. So I think it had a lot of the body, too. That looked like probably the part I would find the most interesting. A lot of the rest of the trailer, like you said, is her walking around. But maybe that's just to give you kind of the tone of what she did during her life. Yeah. And not actually a representation of the most exciting parts of the film. I don't know. It probably took a lot of walking around to find that ichthyosaur. (laughs) That's true, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You're keeping things accurate. I guess so. All my complaining about scientific inaccuracy, and then I'm going to complain about a movie that actually is accurate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Remember this conversation when we watch that film. You're probably going to have to remind me, but you'll probably do it gleefully. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best way. <laughs> so last, the New York Times published a tech tip about the T-Rex game in Chrome, and we've talked about this game before. If you have a connection error message in Chrome, you can press the space bar and then play this game where you're T-Rex and you're running around and you got to jump over cactuses. But I have never gotten that far in the game. And apparently, after 500 points, there's pterodactyls that you also have to avoid. And You've you never gotten that far? down. No, I've never uh, seen the pterodactyls. I get there all the time. I think I always get there. Mm. Unless the page loads before it gets there. No, the page won't load. It does, yeah. Oh, it does? Yeah. Well, I guess I'm just bad at the game. (laughs) But if you don't want to wait until your internet connection is bad, you can play the game online or as an app, which I had heard of before. But what I didn't know was that in your address bar, 
of Chrome. Even if you have an internet connection, you can play the game. You just enter Chrome colon slash slash network dash error slash dash 106, and we'll post that. Obviously. What else would you type in? <laughs> yeah, it's very obvious. I tried it. It works. Still didn't see the pterodactyls, though. Cool. In case you're ever in the mood for a real simple game. It's not nearly as frustrating as Flappy Bird. <laughs> <laughs> this episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now we're going to go on to our interview with Dr. Michael Habib. We're here today with Dr. Michael Habib who is an assistant professor in the Keck School of Medicine of the University of Southern California and a research associate in the Dinosaur Institute at the Los Angeles County Museum of Natural History. He's a paleontologist and biomechanist who studies prehistoric animals and how they moved, and he's known for his work on pterosaurs, feathered dinosaurs, and the origin of flight in birds. So can you tell us a little bit about how you use biology and physics and computer modeling to analyze how dinosaurs move? Because that's, that's so many things. Uh, you know, it's it's a, it's a lot of things and at the same time, fewer things than it sounds like. So the, the mechanics that affect how animals move, in this case, I'm mostly looking at vertebrates or so comparing modern vertebrates to, to fossil ones, are going to be fairly consistent. And actually, a lot of the underlying physics is also applicable to manufactured systems. And the reason why that's relevant is because that's where often the math has been worked out. Essentially, they're playing by the same rules, like lever arms and things all, you know, they have certain rules that apply to them regardless of whether or not that lever arm happens to be a femur or happens to be a crowbar. Mm -hmm. um, 
now, of course, you need you need to know the anatomy well because the way in which that femur is being loaded is different than the crowbar, and the materials it's made of, made of, of course, are vastly different. <laughs> so you have to you have to know what, how those things matter and and how they matter quantitatively. And the computer, the, I mean, whenever you mention it all, you're using computer modeling. It makes it sound like it must be much more sophisticated. But what it really means is that usually there's a lot of degrees of freedom and a lot of in this case, moving parts that you're trying to model at once and a lot of interaction terms and the sheer number of calculations you have to do is very, very large. Mm-hmm. And a computer, of course, can do lots of relatively simple calculations very quickly. So the individual calculations usually aren't that bad, but you're doing a very large number of them. And many of these problems can only be solved what we call iteratively, uh, which is to say that one part of the, the problem uh, depends on another part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And so the only way to solve it is to give it a seed value and let it you know, run through the numbers and then tweak it a little bit and run through the numbers you, you know, you're, where you give it an optimization, like get as close to this as you can. And it'll do it over and over again. You can do that by hand. Technically, it just takes forever. <laughs> uh, that's why they don't traditionally teach iterative solutions in like typical high school algebra, for example. So it's just a lot easier to have MATLAB do it, mm-hmm. uh, for example, you know, just <laughs> Put it all in one matrix, be like, okay, start with this 100 different seed values, crunch through the, the you know, 2,000 iterations, and I'm going to go get a coffee real quick. <laughs> <laughs> Less likely uh, to make mistakes too, right? Uh, to an extent, although there are certain kinds of mistakes that, that you can be more prone to. So it's, it's important in many of these cases to actually have sat down and done at least one iteration by hand hmm. because – once you once you have your system of equations punched into your M files or or whatever you're using, it will give you a result no matter what. Mm-hmm. And you have to know whether the result makes any sense. Yeah. <laughs> and to have an idea of what makes any sense, you have to have some idea of what the reasonable values, range of values could be given some of the initial variables. And one of the easiest ways to do that is just to go through some of it by hand. And then you recognize like, okay, yeah, uh, this is about the value I should get. And then when you do get a really weird value, you go, Huh, why would it be that's like that's much, much larger than would make <laughs> sense. Where in the process could I inadvertently get an inflated value? Oh, you know what? I don't think I divided this properly. And I remember when I did it by hand, I almost made that same mistake. So I probably made the same mistake when I wrote it into the MATLAB or whatever. So you're less likely to make errors after a point, but there is a certain amount of error checking that you have have to be willing to do. Uh, you can't be content with just being like, oh, I got a number. Great. <laughs> Yeah, that is, to me, the biggest problem with computers is they always give a number, no matter how crazy your assumptions are. So it looks official because it came out of some fancy software package. You know, you can make these big cladograms or whatever, but if your assumptions going into it are bad or you didn't account for a lot of variables, then it just can be totally useless. (laughs) Right, 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 exactly. So yeah, so that's, sort of the the good and the bad of, of that that general approach but ultimately many of the more difficult steps where really 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 the action happens is in fact on those sort of some of those starting assumptions and knowing which ones are reasonable to make and which ones are not and understanding which set of principles is applicable here like being able to take the problem and turn it from i want to know about this particular behavior type of motion usually what does that entail in terms of what are the actual processes I'm trying to estimate? And then once you do that, then it's usually pretty straightforward. I do a lot of flight stuff, for example. But I want to know if this thing was a competent flyer. Mm-hmm. To, well, what the heck does that mean 
in real, you know, in uh, sort of real straightforward language. Well, okay, competence is totally subjective. Well, what I mean is, is it able to launch at a given body mass? Okay. Uh, is it able to sustain flight for a given amount of time? Okay. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that the, you, know, you have to have a certain number of wing beats, a certain arc, and you know, and then it kind of snowballs from there, and eventually you're down to a very large number, which are often fairly simple equations. Hmm. Cool. So you did all of that with Microraptor a few years back, and mm-hmm. you you basically found that the hind limbs were more for turning and braking than for actually flying. So how how'd you get to that conclusion? So that part is, is in a way, even though it's probably the most interesting bit is just that observation. That's almost just uh, straight up anatomy, really, hmm. because the only existing sort of quantitative models previously for examining microraptorine uh, aeromechanics uh, made the assumption that the hind limb, if the hind limbs were somehow flight involved, mm-hmm. that they had to somehow be involved in weight support, that they were sort of saying, well, if it, they're involved in aerial locomotion, that means they're lift generating services and the lift generating services, that means it has to be supporting the weight, right? Lift goes up. But in reality, lift doesn't point up. Lift points whatever way you want it to point. <laughs> Despite its name, lift is not defined as the upward force in flight. It is, in fact, in any fluid motion, the part of the resultant force that is perpendicular to direction of flow. So it may sound like a little bit of a mouthful, but basically what it means is if you are, if you're talking about flow going coming straight at you, then you could have lift straight up. Or straight down would both be lift. <laughs> well, straight down would be negative sign. Straight up would be positive sign. You could also have straight. Uh, you have lift out to the sides, like so. You know, if you imagine your, you had your, if it was your arms are out, like wings, sort of towards your fingertips or in back towards your shoulders. Those are all perpendicular to the incoming flow. The only direction that isn't is the direction coming right at you. So, so that force would be drag. The others are all would all be lift with varying signs. So you can point it in lots of different directions. And in fact, lots of things we may not think of as being lift-based are. A great example is the tail on a fish. Hmm. So tail fin on a fish is actually mostly a lift-based propulsive unit. Hmm. It's really it's it's really a sideways wing. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. That is. Which is why the really the really high efficiency and often fast swimmers have really long, narrow tail flukes. If you turn it 90 degrees, you'll notice it looks just like the <laughs> long, narrow wings on a falcon or a fast-soaring bird or something like an albatross. Well, that's not coincidental. It's because high aspect ratio wings are good for that kind of locomotion, regardless of whether you're doing it in water or if you're doing it in air. Cool. To get back to Microraptor, the trick is that you have to do some really weird things with it anatomically in order to make the hind wings aligned in the same plane as the forewings. But you don't have to do anything weird for them to just be vertical, hmm. right? I mean, if it just if it just has its legs hanging out or slightly tucked or whatever underneath it, just the way you'd expect the theropod to kind of fly, basically, it's hind limbs in the same rough position as a as a lot of birds use in flight hmm. now, for example. But you have those uh, long feathers that it had on on the the feet and uh, and part of the leg, then. Well, you basically have two vertical wings. Well, vertical wing, if you add a little bit of a little twist to add a little bit of angle of attack to it, uh, will produce lift, but it will produce it. It'll be basically pointing in the left, the right direction. So if, if you will, instead of up or down. Yeah, makes sense. So it ends up being it ends up being effective in generating what we call yaw, which is basically the animal pivoting around an axis that's 
uh, going through its sort of back to belly, a vertical axis twisting around the vertical axis of the yaw. And if it ro- and if it uses just one of them, it would tend to make it roll, which is going around the axis from nose to tail. And when flying animals roll, they naturally turn. Yeah, that's cool. Do you think there were any dinosaurs that did have legs that were also wings? <laughs> like more for actual lift, like the original people thought, like four flapping appendages, in other words? Uh, no, I suspected <laughs> none. I suspected none of them did. And there's a no, and there's a, a number of different reasons for that. The most simple one is that dinosaurs have a relatively unusual hip amongst reptiles. Mm-hmm. That includes living birds and all the other and all of their the extinct forms as well. Um, there's some variation there, but it's it's fairly consistent. It's one of the things that's kind of interesting about them. It was it's one of the key synapomorphies that unites Tynosauria, actually. In fact, there's a few of them all associated with this. It basically makes them relatively parasagal. They're just not very good at sprawling compared to other other things. And there's a and there's a whole set of of muscular realignments that go with that that we can deduce from the skeletons and that we can measure in birds. It all goes around to basically make them better runners, but poor at sprawling. And if you're not going to, you can't, can't sprawl, you're not going to be able to make that, that system work. And actually, hips in general in vertebrates are different than shoulders in a number of ways that make hips not so good for being a, a, a flapping pivot, basically. Even, even things that have a good sprawl to them, so pterosaurs may have done so, and bats certainly do, still aren't using the hind limbs for flapping. Hmm. As far as we can tell in pterosaurs and certainly in bats. I mean, the hind limbs do go up and down a little bit. I mean, they actually do use them a little bit in the flapping stroke, but it's not a main, it's not a, a primary power generator. It's basically helping to control the trailing edge of the wing and providing some tension. And they can do other cool things. They got that another membrane called urobatagium between their legs, and mm-hmm. bats can actually use that to catch insects in the air, which is kind of cool. So they actually scoop it with their hind limbs, basically, and then <laughs> and then scoop it into their mouth. Really cool. Um, so there's a lot of interesting stuff they can do with the hind limbs in flight, but they don't really use it to, to drive the wings in a meaningful way. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And they have as weird, they have as m- much hind limb al- realignment as you could possibly want to find. And it still doesn't work out that way. I mean, they basically turn their hind limbs backwards. Hmm. I mean, if you look at a, a bat hanging, you know, find a, you can know, find just about any, any online photo you want of a bat, uh, suspended uh phase underneath a branch or something and it looks like it's it's knees bend backwards and actually the knees don't the knees flex in the normal plane what's happening is the hips are basically backwards <laughs> and it's still a hip is still just not as good for driving a flapping stroke as a shoulder so i wouldn't expect that you're going to find any dinosaurs that are actually you know they're doing the dragonfly thing yeah but, yeah yeah now, some of them may have a little bit more sprawls of the hip than others. And there were some individuals that come to me and said, well, you know, I thought your, the work you did in my was really cool, but I really do think they could actually sprawl the hips some more. I said, well, they might have been able to, but I kind of would predict that if they're doing any climbing anyway. And it's been suggested by multiple individuals that they may have done more climbing than other dinosaurs. So most dinosaurs would be just total crap at climbing. <laughs> And Microraptorians may have been semi-arboreal. Maybe. They were living in a forested environment, or at least most of the ones we found happen, we know from paleobotanical evidence. But there's things of forested environments, and for a small animal like that, escaping predation, they might have been able to get the trees. And, and having flexible hips and shoulders is useful for climbing. Arboreal animals, as animals that live in trees, often have more flexible hips and shoulders anyway. So it's not that, it wouldn't be that weird if their hip was a little more flexible than like your average 
dinosaur. Mm-hmm. But that's not going to suddenly turn it into a you know super sprawling, can get its feet out to the sides and and flap its hips kind of <laughs> scenario. There's just there's nothing in the anatomy to support those kind of mechanics. Gotcha. So since you mentioned climbing trees, I know you've written before about the ground up versus trees down, wing assisted incline running, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Where do you think that flight started in the trees or on the ground? Uh, all of the above. <laughs> the original terrestrial, so ground up uh, versus arboreal, tree down kind of debate became this sort of distinct set of opposing camps largely because of some of the personalities involved <laughs> and not a lot to do with the biology. And one of the cool things about the wing assisted incline running hypothesis, and, and there's actually really a, a whole suite of other hypotheses that are similar about some of these animals might have been able to do, is they all they all share a what should have been a fairly fundamental observation in common, but it took years before it uh, kind of came around, which is that Actually, one of the most useful things for a that you can do with a wing is get in and out of trees, yeah, <laughs> or in and out of any other high place at all. Uh, because if you're a small thing and you are predated by big things, one of the easiest things to do to not get eaten is to go into a place that is too tall for the thing to eat you. <laughs> and uh, and this is actually particularly useful in a in a world where there aren't a lot of predators that can climb particularly well. We have to remember that, our, that every slice of time is unique and interesting and has its own weird things about it. One of the things that, that really skews people's perceptions of ecology and biology today mm-hmm. are cats. <laughs> <laughs> cats are amazing, but they, but they are a nightmare when you're trying to explain how ecology works probably, or probably worked in the fossil record to people. Because, for example, you try to explain like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I imagine that this, you know, X herbivore was so large it probably wasn't really uh hunted very often it probably was more or less immune to predation mm-hmm. and and for some reason this idea by the way that that something might be big enough that theropods couldn't take it like upsets a lot of people i don't know why <laughs> i don't know they just they desperately want tyrannosaurs and such to just be able to kill anything at any time and they, and you start getting these weird mental gymnastics where, well if you got like 10 of them ganging up i'm like there's no evidence they would do that and even then it would be stupid because if <laughs> 10 of them get 10 of them go in and maybe two of them come out. Like, yeah. why would you like, why would 10 large predators go against a sauropod that weighs 20 times what any of them weighs individually? They would, you know, half of them would die. Even if they eventually killed it, half of them would die. That's not good. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what ends up and, and happening, of course, is inevitably someone goes, well, I saw this video of, a, of like 30 lions taken down an elephant. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, first of all, that happens rarely. Second of all, it's lions. They're cats. Cats just don't. <laughs> Cats don't care about the rules of ecology. Cats are like, <laughs> I laugh at your evolutionary biology because I'm a cat. I just, I am a cat and I just do stupid things like kill things that are twice my weight and drag them up into trees. Uh, I go after things that are venomous and just do not care. Um, they, you know, I, I will just get 30 of my buddies and I will kill that six ton animal because that's just what I do. I'm a cat. And, and the other thing they really mess with is, of course, they are so, I mean, they're one of the most charismatic, well-known heavily studied modern groups of predators and they a lot of them climb really well so there's Mm -hmm. this kind of impression that except for some certain island communities and things where there aren't cats that just merely getting up into a tree is not going to save you from being eaten but of course in much of the mesozoic it probably would Mm -hmm. because they didn't have anything equivalent you know the the small to mid-sized theropods at the time probably on average couldn't get up a tree very well Hmm. whereas we've got 
multiple carnivorans that can't cats being the most obvious mustelids which gives you your wolverines and and skunks and their relatives uh some of them can climb pretty well too martins and stuff like that mm-hmm. mammalian carnivorans seem to have a propensity for evolving what we call scansorality so the ability to, to be good on the ground and going up trees hmm. which makes the tree escape thing still works i mean still plenty of birds that use that for example like fly just burst up into a tree and you're out of reach but it's not it's it's a little riskier now than it was probably in, say, the late Jurassic. Gotcha. But there's all, I mean, there's a lot of other cool things you can do with wings on the ground, too. You can use it to help pounce on your own prey. You can use it, if once you're up there, to help you get back down without breaking yourself. Uh, you can use it for some interesting turning maneuvers on the ground. There's all kinds of cool things you can, you can do with it. And so what ends up happening very quickly is that the, the tree down and ground up things tends to blend together. Gotcha. So you lose the distinction. Phylogenetically, it's pretty clear that the origin of flight lies within a group of animals, theropods, they were overwhelmingly terrestrial. Mm-hmm. So so in that, in that sense, it is ultimately a, probably ground up. But some of them may have may develop some climbing ability. There may have, so there may have been some um, increasing amount of, of behavior carried out in in trees. And there may have been a lot of going up and down trees using wings and all kinds of other things that could have been going on. So it's I would say the ground up versus trees down dichotomy has long since outlived its usefulness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I also remember a recent paper you might have seen with parrotlets hopping in between branches that kind of reminds me of what you're talking about. Like it's oh yeah, it's like an additional jump ability as opposed to, you know, even flying at all, kind of an in-between step. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I actually extra bit of distance can make a big, big difference. First of all, all kinds of interesting things are wings. Some of them use it to cover food that they've caught. A hawk and stuff will do that so they can shield it so other birds of prey don't notice that they've got to kill. <laughs> Take it. They can even use it as weapons. There's a number of birds that actually will use their wings quite effectively as weapons against other animals. I'll pummel them because they're attached to big muscles. And they'll pummel them with their wings from, from time to time. The, probably the most disturbing example I'm familiar with is that uh, there are some lakes where swans have learned that they can drown dogs. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So the dogs will get close to their nest. And of course, a a lot of dogs that people take the parks and things are retriever mixes. Mm -hmm. So they have a real tendency to want to chase things. So swans will actually taunt them and get them to to dive into the water after them. And then once they're in the water, of course, the swan has the upper hand and it will just hold the dog's head underwater and drown it. Wow. Holy cow. That's crazy. And those are not small dogs either. No, that's a good size. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't mess, don't mess with swans. They're 20, the 20 kilos ish of anger, basically. They're just, they're just wrath with wings. They are really unpleasant animals. Beautiful. I love watching them, mm-hmm. um, but they're easily among the crankiest animals I've ever, I've, I've ever encountered. I always think of geese as being crankier, but maybe not. Maybe. Well, yeah, but we recently <laughs> saw like a young girl chasing like under five, chasing some Canada geese chicks and the, you know, Canada geese parents are around it and didn't seem to care that much. So I don't think a swan would put up with that. <laughs> no, I actually, I saw someone try that in the park near, I was visiting my parents back east and, and I saw that near the lake by their place. And the swan, one of the parent swans chased that person into their car. <laughs> they tried to get into the car after them. Wow. It was like, I'm going to climb in there and I'm going to beat you to death with everything I have. Because <laughs> I, I don't care you're bigger than me. I fly and I have more anger than you do. Yeah. And they don't even have claws either. It's just like they have kind of duck feet, right? 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, they don't have much in the way of claws. Very small ones. They're not going to be able to not going to be able to do a lot of damage with that. They'll just peck at your eyes and yeah. just hit you with their wings as hard as they can until you until you hate yourself for <laughs> getting near their babies. That's that's essentially that's essentially how they'll how they'll roll. Yeah, they're they are remarkably aggressive. <laughs> They're beautiful. They are really aggressive, which which actually makes you wonder a little bit about what the Mesozoic would have been like, really, because mm-hmm. you have all of these, you know, the, the the living dinosaurs we have are actually, on average, kind of aggressive. Mm-hmm. A lot of them, you know, <laughs> parrots are, are can be pretty aggressive. Ducks and swans and stuff are really aggressive. Seagulls. Seagulls. Cassowaries. Oh, oh God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's the best argument for a thing like a T-Rex going after a sauropod, just like... Look at swans. Maybe it just went crazy and would try to kill it for no good reason, not even worrying about its well-being. Yeah, right. Exactly. I think uh, you know that could have been the extra hook on uh, on Jurassic Park, right? You know, instead of instead of being like, oh, they're hunting them, they just be like, well, they got too close to the babies, yeah. and they just spent the rest of the film just killing people on a grudge, sad, <laughs> vindictive. There's like, oh, we use swan DNA to fill in the extra gaps because, well. Their closest living relatives are birds, and we had some swan DNA. Unfortunately, now they just hate everything. <laughs> the raptors have been attacking the fences uh, just because they don't like fences. Um, we were thought they were systematically uh, systematically testing for weaknesses, but they actually were just making sure they hit every part of it equally <laughs> because because they wanted their rage to be equally. <laughs> I like this. You should pitch it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it is funny too because you know amongst the amongst living reptiles of which birds are technically be included, the ones that people are all on average you you pull people and, I, and this is kind of particularly funny to me because I used to be a zookeeper, so the funny thing is, so I worked in animal husbandry as a professional before I went to academia, mm-hmm. and the ones of course that people always think are cute, and they're always cooing over are the birds and turtles, <laughs> and. And people are freaked out by snakes and lizards, particularly snakes. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, actually, in terms of aggressiveness, it's completely the other way around. <laughs> That's true. Birds, to a lesser extent, turtles, and even to some extent, crocodilians, actually more so than tur- turtles aren't archosaurs, but we think they're maybe archosaurs. i not sure exactly what turtles are, but they're closer probably to crocs and birds than they are to, to lizards and snakes. Mm-hmm. And they, that group, the bird, the archosaur group, basically, your birds, your, your crocs, they tend to, first of all, show more social intelligence, more parental care. They also seem to be able to recognize individuals better and they can hold a grudge <laughs> and often are just really aggressive. Whereas snakes are just scared of everything. They just want to be in their box and they don't want to be touched and they're fine. You know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Mesozoic is just full of large archosaurs. I actually think it could have been a fairly unpleasant place. I'm not sure you could necessarily predict either which ones would be aggressive. Like you it wouldn't necessarily be predators. Like they might just, you know, they're not hungry. They might just leave you alone. But it might turn out that like Ceratopsians had just like a weird tick, just like cassowaries do with a just <laughs> charge you for no reason. And they're like, uh, I don't like the way you look. I think I'll just smash you now. <laughs> and like, I think that's like if someone had a time machine and like visited the, the like Cretaceous, like that's how it, that's how they would die. It would be like in some stupid accident because they got like too close to some some large herbivore that turns out to have like the bad temper of a living seagull. And then <laughs> And it just wrecks their world for no reason. Yeah. We interviewed the author of this book called The Dinosaur 4, which was about time travel to the Mesozoic. And the first 
dinosaur they encounter was a big hadrosaur. I think it was like an Amontosaurus. Mm-hmm. And it kills like three of them or something. It gets really angry because it's in its territory. Yeah. That was, oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. I really like that touch because it's like it's always T-Rex killing people or maybe like raptors. But, you know, big herbivores, like if you get in between an elephant and it's young, mm-hmm. they will like destroy a town sometimes. They're nuts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and the other thing is they have the time and energy to spare sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like predators have to conserve it. Predators are like, look, I can't, I can't bother to run for something unless I can eat it, because <laughs> I, because most of the time I miss, and if I miss too many times, I'll starve to death. Mm-hmm. So I'm not running after you unless I absolutely have to, or you know, I think you're tasty. But a herbivore is like, my plants don't run away. <laughs> I found a nice group of trees here. I got plenty of energy. I got some to spare. I've got plenty of energy to spare to murder you. <laughs> Because you're smaller than me, and I kind of don't like how you looked at my babies. <laughs> so I'm just going to run over you now, and then I'm going to run over your corpse. And I mean, you know, it's like, you know, the big killers in Africa, you know, in Africa, where you have sort of a megafauna still are not leopards. They're they're hippos. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those hippos. So speaking of not dinosaurs, you mentioned that you also sometimes work on TV shows specifically with dragons when they ask for input on how they might have flown and you know other sorts of trying to make completely unrealistic animals realistic <laughs> questions this, this is true i've done yes i've done a few of those so what is the biggest problem with dragons in terms of them you know existing is it the wings or is it the massive weight of the body or what makes them hard to make the most, the, well, the most impossible thing physically that they have them do is breathe fire. But, <laughs> but uh, beyond that snarky response, the, from a flight mechanic standpoint, it's usually sheer size is, is the number one. You know, they, they, want, they want something that's the size of a sauropod basically flying around. Mm-hmm. And it is true that an animal, a, a animal can be flight capable at sizes much greater than any living flying animals. You know, we, we look at a some of the big albatrosses, big condors and something. Wow, it's a really big flying animal. Well, only by modern standards, you know, big ash dark pterosaur just, you know, blows it away. <laughs> but, you know, you know, so a few hundred kilos. Yeah. If you imagine some tweaks to anatomy or whatever, then you can maybe even get that up to a thousand kilos or something if you, if you made it just right. But what ends up happening, of course, is they end up wanting things that are tens of tons and they aren't necessarily giving them the most flight efficient anatomy either which just makes it worse so like you know so if if you you could sit down and try to design from scratch the best shape the best anatomy for being as big as possible and still being able to fly and it would be a lot like a pterosaur uh, some of the largest pterosaurs but maybe a few tweaks to make because they were still you know like all animals they had to do multiple things they couldn't just fly so they had some parts of their anatomy that probably had to do with finding mates and reproducing and catching prey and things like that that aren't necessarily just for flight. So you could probably get the size up even more by making it hyper efficient. But they don't do that with dragons. They give them all kinds of awesome extra armor and, <laughs> and giant horns and, and an extra large tail and and all this kind of stuff. And so that's in the end, you've got an anatomy that would probably be flight capable to about maybe a quarter the size of the largest known flight animals because uh, it's not as efficient for flight as say, say like a, a big pterosaur. And yet you've, you've pushed it up into like 60, 70, 80 tons. <laughs> so, you know, so it goes, first of all, you know, I can still give them tips on how to make it look realistic and help suspend disbelief based on how fast the wings should move and how big they maybe should be and all that things like that, just by kind of scaling up 
other things. But you can also kind of imagine a neat solution. The classic idea, and if you look at uh, people chatting, chatting about the uh, the physics of the dragons from Game of Thrones, for example, <laughs> the, the the popular is, well, maybe the atmosphere in that world is different because it's a different world. That's perfectly reasonable. It's a fantasy world, right? Maybe it has a fantasy atmosphere. Mm-hmm. But actually, it's kind of fun. You can make them work and a giant dragon work in a Earth-like atmosphere if you assume instead that what they have is fantasy materials. Hmm. Like if their bones aren't bone, if their bones like are somehow made of metal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and their muscles are like – have the fibers in them instead of being like muscle fibers or like some kind of special um, ratcheting carbon fiber uh, <laughs> attachment or something. You know, like you can imagine they have that they're made of fantasy materials, which in most of these stories they kind of are anyway because usually spears and stuff are supposed to be, you know, bounce off them and you need like a special weapon to kill them and stuff, right? right. That they're, they're almost immune to damage. So actually it kind of, it kind of works like that. Mm-hmm. I always thought that's kind of the more fun fantasy solution. Yeah. And it's the more satisfying one from a physics standpoint. For one thing, if you imagine that, if you imagine oh, dragons are made of all the are made of weird stuff, weird fancy materials, <laughs> but the humans aren't. That explains why the humans don't look a lot different. Because if you if you assume the gravity's low or the atmosphere is super thick, mm-hmm. then everything else should look different too. Oh, true. Right? And why why are the oh, why are the dragons the only things getting a benefit <laughs> from these unusual conditions? But if they're made of something that nothing else is, then it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe it's your influence, but I looked at a couple of dragons and their wing size relative to their body size, and it's usually on the same order of magnitude. They're still usually a little bit too small, but it's you know about half as big as they'd need to be or somewhere in that kind of area, it seems like. But then what I thought was if they generated that much force, it would be so much pressure on their shoulder joint that it would just, you know not be a good day to try to flap your wings but if you talk about their bones being made out of steel or something or you know i don't know unobtainium then like <laughs> then yeah it kind of solves that problem that's pretty cool yeah that's good that's a good uh good point yeah so it that, that's sort of the the sort of thing sometimes i get involved in conversations with with animators and stuff on and it's it's been kind of fun. Most of the shows I've been I've done have been actually real documentaries and been trying to to keep things as accurate as possible, usually about dinosaurs or other Mesozoic mm-hmm. life. But I have done a few shows about dragons and other large flying fantasy animals, and yeah, that's fun. It's cool. Fun. It's, as long as the wings aren't doing that thing where they flap like a sail that's lost its, you know. <laughs> oh yes, yeah. Keeping them keeping them under tension is uh, is really important. Yeah, and they just they love the they love to show the airflow by like fluttering the breeze, like their hair, you know. And it's just yeah. like, yeah, no. And and what I one thing I've learned too is one of the things that really helps in terms of the communication, in terms of actually getting the animators to incorporate some of these ideas that that will make it look more believable or, or work a little, little better physically, you know, give some alternatives to help fit the, cause they're, they're usually under orders also sort of, you know, to try to balance some kind of narrative element in, you know, in there as well. So like it might, you know, they might be, have been told, well, we really want to see the, the wind passing over the animal. You have to show them how so, show that in, in the animation as it's flying. We really show that's going fast. They go, well, maybe I'll have its wings flutter around all over the place and go, well, it would fall out of the sky. Like, <laughs> well, how else do I show the airflow then? You go, well, can you have like bristles down the back of the animal and you could see them like flowing around and then, be, oh, that was, uh, yeah, that's cool. I can totally, you know, I can do that, you know, whatever. So you give them a, give them a different, you know, option and sometimes, and, and so those are being kind of fun communications as well. So just sitting down and brainstorming together. Okay. So how can we, how can we not break this rule of physics 
while simultaneously showing this this feature that that they really want for the for the scene. So it's it's cool. It's an yeah. interesting balancing act. That is really cool. So is there anything else that you're working on that you'd like to talk about? Oh, I always have lots of things I'm working on <laughs> in the realm of uh, of giant animals. So talking about giant flyers, but these things are just straight up giant. Uh, so our our field crew in New Mexico, in the 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 one working at Lake, Lake Cretaceous, not the Crow Ranch one, mm-hmm. has been excavating a couple of titanosaurs for the Ooh. last handful of years, and so those are big big suckers. And actually, uh, one of them. Well, they're both among the largest animals ever found in North America, and one of them may be the largest animal known from North America from any, any time period. Wow. Any, any group of organisms. A terrestrial animal, that is. I mean, these are you know, these are things about the size of a of a mid mid range baleen whale walking <laughs> oh, geez. on on land, uh, which is, is pretty impressive. And so that's been an interesting project and just sort of working on that, that size problem, just how the heck, heck does this work? Uh, <laughs> and we've been working on, we have a nice articulated neck in particular. So I've been working on some different neck mechanics stuff presented on some of that, which I'll be brought that pretty soon, uh, on sort of, you know, some of the different features that we're seeing in the, the necks that help them s- support these really, cause it's not just a big animal, it has this really big long neck, which is actually kind of a weird thing to have on a big animal. It makes sense from a feeding efficiency standpoint to feed that big body, but the standpoint of mechanics mm-hmm. that actually creates more problems. Yeah. <laughs> Or because you go, okay, well now you're going to put a basically a big cantilevered bridge hanging off the end. You're, okay, great. So, so kind of how that works and blood flow problems that come from that and how some of those might be might be addressed by some of the anatomy of the animal. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. And and the newest thing I've got kind of got going, which uh, is brand new, haven't even really gotten very far into analysis yet. Just it's we've had some pre- planning meetings. We know it know what's going to happen. I've kind of figured out. What I need to do, we just need to get the data and, and go, is trying to do some work on the, or trying to get some good estimates of mechanics, toughness and, and hardness and things like that associated with the armor in some of the large armored dinosaurs, particularly dinosaurs. Nice. And the feature critter for this particular project is Borealopelta. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, so for, for people listening to this that, that haven't seen it yet, go find the paper, Borea Pelta, also nicknamed the Suncore Notosaur. It's on display at the Royal Tyrrell Museum in Drumheller, Canada. So you should go up to Alberta and see it on display. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. One of the best preserved dinosaurs ever found. And it has, it's an armored dinosaur. It's, an, it's a notosaur type of ankylosaur. And it has all the scales and skin and such preserved, including the keratin sheaths on the armor. So now for the first time, we can actually do real material property analysis on the armor because we know what percentage of each plate is keratin and what percentage is bone. Mm-hmm. Cool. And that's important because the, the overall performance of the armor is going to depend on the properties of having a composite material as opposed to just a straight bone armor or straight keratin armor. So by performance, I'm assuming you mean like resistance to teeth? Yes. Resistance to teeth, resistance to twisting, possibly resistance to blunt, uh, to blunt force trauma too remember there's some indication that maybe or has been suggested that maybe the armor in these animals is also doubling to help protect them from each other if there was a lot of intra-specific combat mm-hmm. a lot of combat between individuals so the shoulder spikes these notosaurs might have been used to push on each other so curious about what that might mean uh, this, this is not one of the types that has a tail club but of course it's been suggested the tail clubs might have been used against each other and the ones that had clubs and uh, part-time uh, not saying that that's necessarily the case but it's 
it's something that we can help test by looking to see what kind of absorption properties the armor would have. Is it seemingly optimized for for essentially the mechanics of being bitten, or is it more optimized for the mechanics being pushed on, or other you know, or or, or hit with a large blunt uh, surface, or what have you? So you can you can do a lot of interesting stuff there. You can we'll also get an idea for how it might move on the animal because it's really a mosaic of plates, so these things have some mobility in between them. Oh, hmm. that's cool. Because the idea of how mobile the animal would be and how much. Uh, how it might affect its locomotion when that it's sacrificing if there's a trade-off there where it's sacrificing some of its locomotor abilities for the armor or is it moving in a way that there's not much uh, of a cost there so we can you can get an idea for sort of just how um, how dynamic the armor uh, might have been as well uh, and then, and that was all in the end the whole thing will come together gives an idea for how these animals behaved how they can move around their environments and then also how they might use their armor in defense because it's it's very likely that it was a fairly dynamic defense as opposed to just a uh, hunker down and take it mm-hmm. uh so i've got a couple couple of of early hypotheses on that that will will go about go about testing so i'll be working with on that primarily with caleb brown who is nice. the lead author on the original description yeah yeah that sounds awesome that does and kylosaurs are my favorite so I'm going to be really interested in what you find out. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the I, I suspect I'll give you a, a little uh, spoiler uh, that I suspect already based on some of some back down book numbers have done that the uh, the answer is to some extent going to be that getting close as a large theropod was a very, very bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> One interesting bit is the armor is not uniform over the animal. Mm-hmm. There's certain plates that are much bigger and have basically little blades on them in certain places and others that are that are more like just lots of little little uh, small plates just locking in to form more of a shield. So based on on that already, just qualitatively, I have a feeling that the that these things are pretty act- active in their own self-defense and could be a uh, pretty rough <laughs> on a uh, on a on a predator who who makes who makes a bad move which would probably again bringing you know modern ecology into it un, unlike most programs would probably not be at a veteran adult tyrannosaur because they would know better they would just <laughs> it's gonna be a young it's gonna be a youngish newly on its own possibly if they had parental care we don't know but but youngish adult still fairly naive Therapod, right? That, that's who is the picking fights they can't win. <laughs> Almost inevitably. I mean, that's what happens in, in, in living day systems. That a, a young lion sometimes get killed trying to attack African porcupines. Oh. Hmm. Yeah. The, the older adults know not to do that. <laughs> but sometimes you get a young one, yeah, that get skewered through the face and um, can starve to death, basically. Oh, oh yeah. That's awful. It's a pretty awful way to go. Yeah, those um, porcupines are adorable and they're really cool, but that is some nasty armor. Yeah. I don't want to mess with that. That's just, I mean, the quills on this thing. We had a pair at the zoo where I worked and they, I mean, occasionally, you know, because they, they shed their hair, so they shed them every so often in green rooms. And you'd find, I mean, these things are like a couple of feet long mm-hmm. sometimes. That's a couple of foot long barbed removable spike <laughs> that, that, that folds up and down depending on whether or not it wants to deploy it or not. It's just... Yeah, bad, bad news. So that you know, so one can imagine. So we can, we can at that point. We'll once we have the actual quantitative results and we have some real, you know, mechanics on actual performance, then we could play around with just some fun stories about like well, well, what might happen in this this scenario or that scenario. Sort of a yeah, a youngish tyrannosaur ends up in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> kind of fun, fun stuff. Yeah. Uh, actually, we have a there's a uh, beautifully preserved large pterosaur from also in the Royal Terror Museum 
uh, so also from Alberta that uh, Dave Hone and I and Francois Therrien are working up. And it's been there for a long time. It had been tentatively thought to maybe be an existing species, and it turns out it is not. Hmm. So we'll be adding another, another species to the giant pterosaur lineup. And uh, I talked a little bit about why I think they might have had giant heads. Um, <laughs> Well, it, it, it's my, my department chair thought it was really funny. She walked by my, my office. She goes, I love the fact that your whiteboard has all a bunch of math you're working out and is labeled giant head problem. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. Some of these big pterosaurs have an, had enormous skulls compared to the rest of their body. Mm-hmm. You know, like cases where where like the, the whole torso is like a third the length of the skull. <laughs> And uh, in at least one case, I could think of uh, in this animal Anangera from Brazil, mid to largest size pterosaur, you could fit both feet in one of the eye sockets in one orbit. Hmm. Wow. That's nuts. <laughs> that is. It's just, yeah, these things that I call them, I, my nickname for them is flying murder heads. <laughs> Those are some of the highlights at the moment. I always, always have more things on the burners than I probably should. But. <laughs> Well, it's all really exciting things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a good life, right? I can't complain. Like, oh, man, I have too many dinosaur projects. <laughs> <laughs> like, I would have to be a real jerk to be, like, really upset about that. That would be, uh, <laughs> that would be interesting. Like, you know, I had someone ask me the other day. They were like, yeah, dude, does it bother you that, like, people, you know, that, you know they, they make these these television shows, but they get stuff about dinosaurs, but they get stuff wrong, or, like, people really be really interested about them, but they'll, like, they'll, they'll post things online that are incorrect. I'm like, well, yeah, I'd prefer they be accurate, but, like, how much of a, a jerk would I have to be to be like, man, people are really interested in my animals, but sometimes they get things wrong. Like, <laughs> you, know how many, you know how many people would kill to have millions of, of people around the world that are not specialists in their field think it's interesting? It's pretty cool. It's stuff. It is. Yeah, every like early mammal paleontologist <laughs> probably would right, like that. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I'm sure some large percentage of my colleagues in vertebrate paleontology are tired of being asked when they say I'm a paleontologist, oh, so you work on dinosaurs? <laughs> <laughs> like that's kind of be really annoying. Um, and I've never had either once. I've never, you know, I've never heard it been, been like, I'm a paleontologist. I'm like, oh, so like snails? <laughs> <laughs> Although that would that would be a pretty funny prank. I want to I want to do that sometime. Like get some get, like see like a, next time in a gathering. I know there's some other paleo people that I work with there. Like seed some students that are new like in the room, you know, <laughs> that, that they don't know, or the, and just have them be like, so what do you work on? Well, I'm a paleontologist. So like, oh, that's really cool. So like like late Cambrian cladogenesis <laughs> and just watch them be like, what? <laughs> That's great. Uh, science pranks. <laughs> yeah. If, if you do that, uh, love to hear how it turned out. <laughs> I, if, if I can line that up, I'll record it for you. How's that? Yes. Those... That would be great. So where's the best place for people to find out more about you and your work? That is actually a good question. I do prowl the social media uh, highway from time to time, so they can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is AeroEvo, A-E-R-O-E-V-O for aerial evolution, because I study mostly flight origin stuff, nice. or at least I have historically. So I'm on there. Um, that can be sometimes a good place to, to nudge me for a question about giant pterosaurs and stuff like that. 
Uh, I don't have a, a big research website up at the moment. I have, uh, I mean, I've got a, you know, the, I have a page at USC, but it doesn't uh, say all that much. Uh, check it out if you want. I do have a research gate page. I post a lot of my papers and things for those who, on the academic side, who like uh, poking at that. I've done a handful of other interviews and podcasts. So web search will pull some of those up as well if they like to hear me uh, chat at length uh, about stuff. I suppose <laughs> those are probably the the easiest places to find me. I'm not too hard to find online, really, all considered. If you're in L.A., if it's someone who's, who's in Los Angeles, I give uh, talks at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County fairly often and occasionally public talks on the USC campus or other venues around town as well. Well, thank you so much. I think my my views on fish and bats have changed a little. So. <laughs> <laughs> fish and bats yes yes uh, I, actually if really funny one of my favorite quotes with you know, another biologist looking at we were all we were talking about fish and we were talking we were kind of laughing about the fact that not many people work on fish in vertebrate paleontology given how many fossils there are of them they have the best fossil record of all the vertebrates and that not many people work on them mm-hmm. comparatively and my, my friend was like yeah Fish are jacked, man. <laughs> Why don't more people work on them? And I was like, yeah. I mean, right off the bat, they have two sets of jaws, or at least teleos do, which is most living fish. They have two sets of jaws. You know, moray eels can actually do the thing from aliens where they bite you once and then another little mouth comes out and bites you again. Uh. <laughs> there are videos of this. Like, you know, the people, like, giving them, you know, a chunk of food and then, like, not letting go and, like, struggling with them a little bit. And then it's like, oh, yeah, screw you. And it shoots another. <laughs> you see it's, like, something kind of bubbles in its throat. And this other mouth comes out of its throat and grabs the thing and pulls it in like oh a grappling hook. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that is crazy. We live on – we, we share a planet with these things. They're alive. <laughs> you can you – can, you could see them in the wild on a snorkeling trip off the coast of, you know, coast of where I live, you know, and you just take them. Granted, there's things out there where like, I'm going to go watch the alien movie. It was so scary. I'm like, dude, I'm just going to go swimming. <laughs> yeah, I stay out of the ocean. There, there, are real, there, are real, there are real creatures like that that are, that are awesome. It's just fantastic. It is. <laughs> well, thanks again. We've really enjoyed talking to you today. Oh, thank you as well. Thank you as well. Yeah, I hope, uh, I hope, it, I hope you had a good time. Uh, you can take away some, some weird new perspectives on bats, fish, <laughs> Uh, and angry herbivores. <laughs> yes. And swans. The the world the world's hitmen. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks again, Michael, for the great interview. I always like talking about these trees down versus ground up and wing assisted incline running and all those really geeky dinosaur behavior things. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. 
CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Amargosaurus, which was a request from Marcos via Facebook and Dinosaur4602 via YouTube. So thanks. It was a sauropod that lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now Argentina in the La Amarga Formation, and the name means La Amarga Lizard or Bitter Lizard, and in Spanish the word Amarga means bitter. La Amarga is also the name of a nearby town and the formation where it was found. Guillermo Rougier found Amargosaurus in 1984 during an expedition led by José Bonaparte, and it was the eighth expedition of the Jurassic and Cretaceous Terrestrial Vertebrates of South America project. Only one skeleton was found, and it's mostly complete, it includes a fragmentary skull, and was described in 1991 by Leonardo Salgado and José Bonaparte. The only species is called Amargosaurus kazawai, and the species name is in honor of Luis Kazau, a geologist at the YPF Oil Company, which was state-owned at the time. And Kazau's the one who told Bonaparte and his team about the formation in 1983, which led to the discovery. So it makes sense. Amargosaurus was first unofficially mentioned, though, in 1984 in the Italian book Sulle Orme de Dinosauria by Bonaparte. It was called Amargosaurus groberi, though the species name obviously changed. Amargosaurus was small for a sauropod. It was about 30 to 33 feet or 9 to 10 meters long, and it weighed about three short tons. Huh, I never realized it was that small. Mm-hmm. It also had a short neck compared to other sauropods. But what a neck it had. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> why you don't think of it as being that small. It's quality over quantity without Amargosaurus. <laughs> also, 30 feet long is still pretty big. I mean, I guess compared to anything on land today. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Amargosaurus is part of the family Dicreosauridae, which includes Dicreosaurus, Brachytrachylopon, and Suacea. And these dinosaurs had shorter necks and were smaller than other sauropods. Dicreosauridae is also part of the Plotacoidea. Amargosaurus, as Garrett mentioned, had an interesting neck and back. It had two rows of tall spines. And the spines from the second to last dorsal vertebra to the first tail vertebra were really long, but those were in a single row and paddle-shaped. Salgado and Bonaparte first suggested that the spines were used for defense, in 1999, Salgado said that the spines may have supported a keratinous sheath. Gregory Paul said in 2000 that if the spines had a keratinous sheath, they could have been used to fight against predators and other amargosaurs, and it might have been able to point its spines forward by bending its neck. Almost like jousting. Yeah. At least that's how I think of it. And amargosaurus could shake its neck to make sounds with the spines. Hmm. Then Mark Hallett and Matthew Wadel said in 2016 that the spines that were backward-directed may have been able to skewer predators when the neck is abruptly pulled back in an attack, similar to what a giant sable antelope and Arabian orcs can do to defend themselves against lions, apparently. Hmm. It's quite a move. Yeah, all of these are quite the moves. In 1997, Jack Bailey said that Amargosaurus may have had a sail since the spines were similar to Dimetrodon, which had a sail. But since there are two rows of spines, it doesn't seem likely that it had two parallel sails. Bailey said the spine may have been like a scaffold, though, that was covered in skin. Yeah, it's kind of funny to say, like, what's likely? Because I would argue that it doesn't seem likely that an animal would have anything like these spines. <laughs> so <laughs> True. what's more likely that they just stuck out like bones, they had keratinous sheaths, that they were 
covered in skin. It's all pretty weird. <laughs> yes. So as you can imagine, not everyone agrees with Bailey. And Gregory Paul said the sails could reduce neck flexibility and that the spines were circular in cross-section and not flattened like in other animals with sails. In 2007, Daniela Schwartz and others said that the spines on diplodocids and dicrerosaurids enclosed an air sac, which would be connected to the lungs and part of the respiratory system. But in Amargosaurus, the upper two-thirds of the spines would have been covered by keratin, which would mean the air sac could only be in the lower one-third of the spines. Bailey said that the paddle-shaped spines at the tail end were like modern humped ungulates like bison, which may mean Amargosaurus had a fleshy hump above its hips. <laughs> and Bailey has also said that other dinosaurs may have had humps like Spinosaurus or an Aranosaurus. Personally, though, I like the idea of the sail or the spines better. Yeah, the spines really look the coolest. Yeah. So these spines, they may have also been used for display or to show dominance. And the spines also meant that Amargosaurus couldn't raise its neck vertically. Amargosaurus may not have had a great sense of hearing. This is based on a 2014 study by Carbajal and others who CT scanned the skull. And they said that based on their 3D model of the inner ear, the orientation of the semicircular canal, which helps with balance, Amargosaurus's snout faced downward and the neck was gently sloping downwards. So it may not have been able to raise its neck more than 9 feet or 3 meters. Amargosaurus probably had a broad snout and pencil-like teeth. It was quadrupedal, but it probably couldn't rear up on its hind legs, and it probably ate food at mid-level height. Other sauropods that lived around the same time and place included Zapolosaurus, Amargotitanus, and unnamed basal titanosauriforms. And this would have worked because Amargosaurus probably ate its food at around 9 feet high, while Zapolosaurus, a Rebecosaurid, ate at ground level, and Amargotitanus, a titanosaur, would have eaten at higher levels. Other dinosaurs, in addition to sauropods, included the Stegosaur Amargostegos, the Ceratosaur Ligabueno, and some sort of large titanurin. And other animals included the mammal Vincelestes and the crocodilomorph Amargosuchus. And can you see a pattern in the name of animals? <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> so Margosaurus's forelimbs were shorter than its hind limbs, and it had a wide pelvic region and five digits on its hands and feet. Solgato and Bonaparte said in 1991 that Amargosaurus was a slow walker because it had proportionately short forearms and hind legs. But in 1999, Gerardo Mazetta and Richard Farina said that Amargosaurus could do rapid locomotion. Its legs were more sturdy than a rhinoceros, which can gallop. The Amargosaurus skeleton is stored in the Bernardino Rivadavia Natural Sciences Museum in Buenos Aires. And Amargosaurus was considered for Disney's dinosaur movie in 2000. Ricardo Delgado made a concept design with giraffe-like spots, but unfortunately that got cut. You can see an Amargosaurus replica named Margie at the Melbourne Museum. And you can also see an Amargosaurus replica at the Mind Museum in the Philippines as part of Dinosaurs Around the World Passport to Pangaea, which is an exhibit that runs until March 2nd of next year. I'm surprised there aren't more replicas and statues of Amargosaurus around because you could do a full-scale one inside a museum relatively easily since it's smaller than a lot of sauropods, and they look so cool. Maybe it's too hard to do the spines? Maybe. I don't know. Seems worth it. Maybe there's too much controversy. Are those spines? Is that skin or are they humps? Oh, that could be, yeah. <laughs> You're going to spend a whole bunch of money and then it's immediately wrong. Mm. <laughs> and our fun fact of the day 
is that volcanoes can cause large explosions of sulfur similar to what happened at the Chicxulub impact. So, for example, Krakatoa was a volcano, actually still is a volcano because it's reformed, but it was a volcano in Indonesia and it erupted in 1883. It's a pretty well-known eruption because it was 310 decibels, which was heard thousands of miles away and apparently ruptured eardrums of sailors like 50 miles away. That's how loud it was. And it broke some gauges of pressure sensing equipment that was hundreds of miles away because of how huge the shockwave was. Pretty nuts. Anyway, the ash from the volcano darkened the skies basically of the entire world for two days. And it released an estimated 20 megatons of sulfur into the atmosphere. Is that sulfur again? Yeah. By comparison, the Chicxulub impactor emitted hundreds to possibly thousands of times that amount of sulfur. So you can imagine just how long the effects might have lasted. This eruption did cause what's referred to as a volcanic winter as opposed to an impact winter, which was caused by the Chicxulub impactor. And global temperatures dropped by about 1.2 degrees Celsius or 2.2 degrees Fahrenheit for about five years. So a pretty big impact for one volcano. And there was an earlier volcano eruption in about 1815, which apparently completely eliminated summer from the planet one year. How Game of Thrones. Yeah. (laughs) That's pretty crazy. (laughs) A good Game of Thrones reference. But... Unfortunately, the earlier eruption was a little too early for modern scientific principles to be around, so we didn't get as much information about it. This helps explain why scientists weren't sure what the mass extinction at the end of the Cretaceous was caused by if volcanoes and impacts can both cause similar climate effects until you find the crater as a smoking gun, then you kind of know. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you would like to join our growing community, check out our page at patreon.com slash I know dino. Thanks again. And until next time.